hello everyone. Uh, I am Abdulfiq Alapuri uh, with Envision, also representing Policy Punchline today. Uh, today, I'm quite lucky to be with Dr. Jamil El Ahmad. Uh, Dr. El Ahmad is the CEO of the Brain Forum, a neuroscience BCI uh, and VR research foundation in Switzerland, uh, as well as the founder of NeuroPro, where he is currently at, uh, a commercial company trying to bring cheap brain signaling software to the masses. Additionally, he is an honorary research fellow at Imperial College London and a number of other colleges. Uh, prior to his neuroscience work, he was a software engineer at IBM, uh, after which he's transitioned more into neuroscience and the intersection uh, with computer science. So the first question I had was, moving from software engineering at IBM to neuroscience feels like, feels like a fairly large jump. Uh, what is it that you know, motivated this change, and you know, especially so, uh, you know, so long after you'd started your career, uh, what made you jump to neuroscience? Yeah. Thanks a lot, Adita, and thanks for inviting me to talk. It's a real pleasure for me as well to share with you. It's always inspiring to, to uh, talk to uh, the, the future generation uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, engage in some of the topics we're going to be talking about. Uh, well, so what took me to neuroscience? I think I stumbled on neuroscience about 15 years back. A friend of mine was looking at some epilepsy uh, uh, EG code and uh, he got me uh, curious about it. And before I knew what's happening, I was looking at that code myself and suddenly I found myself, I was, uh, 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 I started my career as a, a programmer. So I was writing assembly code. Uh, I was working with hexadecimal and binary uh, uh, data. So when I saw a new science data, I thought I, I could understand that before I didn't uh, pay attention too much. But, uh, and then uh, the rest is history. For the last 15 years, I've been working a lot using my uh, computer science knowledge and the skills I've learned in the various industries I worked to actually deploy it into this, uh, this field, neurotech, where we can connect some of the tools we have now developed uh, in computer science and see how we can do uh, better uh, interfaces. If you think about it, Aditya, uh, since about 100 years, we're still using the same uh, man-machine interface. We still use a keyboard. Uh, it took us about 30, 40 years to develop the mouse and the pointing devices. We're moving to touch screens. And I think people are appetite wanting something better. And I think that's where a lot of the BCI work is going to us. How can we seamlessly connect with these productivity tools around us that uh, computing can produce. Yeah, and one of the things that I actually wanted to ask about was, at least for me, when I'm interacting with a computer or a calculator or some other device, one of the main bottlenecks does seem to be the I.O. speed between me and the device, that you know, the limit of how fast I can compute with the calculator is not my processing speed or the calculator speed, but how fast I can type numbers in. And it's similar for you know, searching through Google or, or many other applications. Uh, with sort of the neural signal processing that you and your team are developing and other people in the space are, how high could the IOS be a go and could it get to the point where it's not even a bottleneck anymore and we start having bottlenecks in our own processing, for example? To be honest, there is uh, the speed of capture, uh, uh, you know, because we are not running at a fast speed as us, so we're trying to, to capture the brain signals or any biosensory signals. Uh, that uh, uh, we can have, we can have uh, massive computing speeds to capture that. The question is, what do you do with the data when you capture it? Mm -hmm. And uh, how meaningful that data is. 
So, and uh, the other big challenge is the filters, because when you when you uh, capturing this sensitive data, you're capturing a lot of artifacts along with it. So, depending on the environment, especially if you're operating in a real-time environment and uh, uh, you know, like uh, a normal, you're monitoring or capturing data from a normal uh, day event where there's a lot of surround noise and so on, and that data could be, uh, uh, you know. Uh, it needs a lot of cleaning, it needs a lot of filtering before you can actually start to look broadly uh, what all that means. But you know the challenge, uh, uh, there's a lot of, if you look at what's happening with BCI, you see on the one hand there's some real pragmatic solutions and I have two or three to share with you today. And then on the other hand we have these sort of philosophical sci-fi ideas which are great to, for entertainment and for futuristic, but, uh, but they're not real. And the reason being because uh, uh, when we look at BCI, really we're looking at uh, capturing brain uh, signals. Uh, we talk about brain data, but it's really brain electrical signals and frequencies. Mm -hmm. Now, how are we capturing them? Uh, we have two ways. We either have the invasive or non-invasive. Unless it's a surgical procedure or for some real clinical, it is not, uh, 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 one should not look at the invasive as the solution for us to communicate with machines. Because not everyone's gonna like open their skull to plant uh, a grid of electrons. Uh, it's extreme. This is a medical, uh, I think these things are now being used and have been for uh, you know, a good many years. But then you have the interface, the BCI, where it could help us be more productive and so on. So we're relying on EEG. And generally speaking, uh, what, is all, what are we capturing? Uh, the brain has about just under 100 billion processors or transistors, or we can call them computers. And each one has a different voltage. And they are so packed in such a small space and they're so intertwined. Their connections between each other are dynamic. Now, what does that mean? It means they are not physically point-to-point -point connections. So these dandelites that flow from the neurons are not touching the other dandelites. And the communication is flowing in a fluid uh, uh, way. And this is why neuroplasticity is, uh, uh, helps us learn and adapt because these channels, the more you use them, the more stronger they become. It's very similar if you take a bucket of water and throw it on the sand. The force of the water will carve the sand, but equally the water will go where the sand terrain uh, has been uh, uh, set. So both the cause and effect contribute to this neuroplasticity effect. Now, 83 billion neurons and we have today, for example, the smallest headsets that capture brain activity has two electrodes. And some of the practical ones, maybe Luis can show us one or two of them, the, the clinical ones, let's say 256 or more electrodes, some we use in the, our clinic, we can have them say, uh, 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 capturing a lot of data. And generally we're capturing about 256 uh, samples a second, which is not a lot in computer terms, but it's a lot when you pull it all together and process it. Now, what 
are we capturing? We're not capturing the brain data. We're just capturing noise. Because these are just mic microphones, that's all. And this noise and the electrical activity that is coming from the brain is what we're trying to... Uh, to uh, uh, ah, hang on now. I wanna. I picked up this photo. I was looking at my scrapbook, and now uh, you see that machine. Uh, I'm standing with a colleague of mine at the Swiss. Uh, it's a Swiss hospital. It's called the Swiss uh, Epileptic Epilepsy Clinic, and this BCI they had in 1947, and it was the first EEG capture machine in Switzerland used by the Nobel Prize winner, Rudolf Hess. So that is, uh, we were taking a photo there next to the machine because I was holding in my hand an iPad, which does a lot more than what this machine is doing. So, uh, so that was one of the early BCIs. And if you look below, uh, you see these electrodes. These are uh, used to be glued for long-term monitoring. So they, were, they used to be uh, strongly glued. Uh, and uh, and hooked up, and there were more primitive ones as well. I think uh, we can show you at some point. But uh, but uh, uh, that was uh, the machines back then, and this is one of the early days of the BCI experimentation and what we can get out of that data from picking up the electrical signals of the brain. So going back to what I was saying, so think about it. I think there is a a big orchestra playing in Central Park, say and you're two, three miles away. And that orchestra is about maybe 5,000 5, instruments. We don't want to say more. Now, you can tell from the noise that they're playing music from that distance, but you cannot make out what, this, what tune they're, they're playing, right? Yeah. It's too far. So you can pick up the rhythms. You, can, you can't pick the melody. All these BCIs, don't have the power. We have, eight, it's like if you have eight microphones listening into a million people, you will hear the noise, the collective noise of these people. But if you want to listen to every single person, then you need to have a microphone for each of this, these people. Now, that's not the case with BCI. We're taking collective energy fields and trying to extrapolate based on that what people's behaviors or what so they're thinking. Just a push in a little bit here. I just wanted to sort of clarify where the main technical challenge is. Because earlier you had mentioned at 226 samples per second is roughly where you were recording at. But while that is certainly a lot compared to audio, which usually runs at 45,000 or 44,100 samples per second, where we are able to do real-time processing, uh, it, it seems far smaller. So is the main issue not processing power but primarily the ability to physically record points on the brain, or is processing power also an issue of consideration? Well, you see the, uh, uh, the brain cycles, yeah, uh, range from about, you know, one hertz to about 40, 60 hertz. So you're not talking about, we're not running massive data dumping. Uh, we're just picking the, uh, the electrical activity and the voltage. So we're picking up the cycle and the voltage. Now, we, can, we know a lot from the cycle and the voltage, but we, don't, we can't 
take a brain dump and say, and this is all the real time data. So every second, everything changes. So, uh, so the notion of, and then we don't know where that data has been stored. Today, nobody, uh, no scientists, uh, you know, or no theory we have that, you know, our memory is here or there or how it is. There's a lot of, you know, like there's no evidence to suggest a conclusive evidence. So there's a lot of theories. So, so really, what we're trying to do uh, with BCI is to do. You can, uh, if you, if you are, if you think you can, one day in the near future, take a brain dump and be able to upload it again. I think this is sci-fi. If you want to sort of have a BCI that can uh, test, check your mood. That's possible today. Yeah, we can tell from your brain waves whether you're tired, whether you're sleepy, whether you're attentive, uh, in which mind state from your brain waves. And because it come, uh, uh, we can capture this data in real time, you could have uh, an instant feedback. You know, so if you're watching television, it is. Uh, uh, we can easily now with a simple headset tell uh, if an advert comes, you and your girlfriend say, uh, who likes it? And you both have it. And who doesn't? Who pays attention to this advert and who doesn't? And these are very useful data that can enhance the tools that we are building for marketing and, and others. But if we are uh, saying we want to know what you are thinking, that is a big, big question because we still don't know the language of the brain. We don't know the signaling language. And there is some uh, scientists who believe we have a language of thought that is different from the language we use. So you have a signaling language, which is these electrical uh, uh, voltages that are firing in concert. Then you have a language of thought, which has derived from our consciousness, then we have the language we deliver our thoughts in, English yeah. or whichever it is. So when we're saying we can actually go and look at these signals and derive that, we must be able to reverse engineer all that, and no one can. Mm -hmm. So it is pure sci-fi, the thought that we can pull who you are, store it for 100 years, and then upload it, and then you're back in business. It's, this is just like this fantasy stuff. But there's a lot of stuff happening with epilepsy, for example, where we can monitor brain uh, through deep learning and through uh, uh, pattern matching and uh, do some calibration over time on a patient because every brain is different and every neuron is different. So you can't just take a broad brush solution. So you need to calibrate. So if you're working with brain signals on, on different uh, people, Everyone's signals are different. So we need to calibrate the methodology we use on every individual before the session. And you've seen it with most BCIs, they do that uh, before if you get the news or uh, emotive, et cetera. It's, uh, so really there's, there's not, uh, there is a lot we can do and we can do today, but there is some of this, the fantasy stuff This could cloud the pragmatic solutions that we could do today. But the deep challenge remains, Aditya, is how can we get that data out, not what we do with it? Yes. How can we get it clean? How can we pass it on? And that is the difficulty.
So, but it certainly sounds like technology at this point can do broad mood-based detection, epilepsy protection and broad strokes. It's certainly at the point where they're, these are all commercially useful, uh, commercially useful avenues. Uh, is there a point at which you think uh, a one where BCI headsets might be standard for those with medical needs, say depression patients or epilepsy patients? And is there a further point where perhaps a BCI headset becomes as necessary to carry around every day as a smartphone? And sort of what are the barriers to getting there? Well, that's a good question. And I think this is one, one of the projects we've been working on for several years is an epilepsy prediction uh, headset. And uh, to, to, to build that, you need a number of things. You need a data scientist and you need to be able to capture in real time on the move brain data. And you need to be able to analyze it with algorithms in real time. So you don't, you, you don't say, okay, give me a couple of minutes till I figure out. So it has to be done in real time. And the data you need for the algorithm has to come uh, uh, the sample size should be, uh, should be sufficient enough, small enough that you can do the analytics so you can do it in real time. So the challenge of the data size, the challenge in uh, the analytics component, but the biggest challenge is how do you capture that data in real time? And we developed an algorithm called WINA, and maybe Luisa can uh, show. And, and basically the idea of WINA came to me because I worked on uh, uh, on uh, uh, operating system code, and uh, really, uh, it's like uh, antivirus scan. So basically, what we did is we uh, we looked at brain data on real time, and uh, we converted it using some weights to binary, just exactly. Uh, and we were looking for suspicious behaviors. So really, we were looking for all the anomalies. So we were scanning, just like you would scan emails and documents in a, in a virus scan, as per, per this animation. And every time we see uh, an anomaly, we flag that out, which is something that uh, does not conform to the patterns of the rest of these uh, uh, data sets. And then uh, we, we convert these anomalies and see their correlation and uh, through that, we're able to see uh, uh, epilepsy bi biomarkers so we can compare, so we can alert the patient to uh, be safe as that episode strikes. So uh, obviously the next step, had we got that right, is to go to intervention. So once, if you know that the epilepsy is gonna be in 45 minutes, say, or 30 minutes, then, you could introduce uh, electrical stimulus uh, uh, that uh, because the brain works in a trajectory way, so the thinking or the theoretical thinking behind it is to, to through that, then it could, uh, that could then uh, uh, bypass the episode that would have, have happened. The biggest challenge is getting that data in real time. So in this uh, video clip, we see this uh, lady who, uh, she was doing her gardening, she found, she got an alert on her phone coming from her headset. The headset we, we developed at NeuroPro, uh, and uh, I think Luisa can show us one of uh, uh, different versions of it. But really the challenge, this is one of the headsets we, we felt that that could go under the, uh, 
the eight channel one could go under a cap or under the scarf, you know, and uh, uh, but but the challenge has been able to get these electrodes to continue to be conducting with no gel uh, on the move with all the noise outside and be able to transmit that data in real time. Of course, if you had an invasive now long term monitoring, uh, I think we have a, a chip for the long term monitoring. We can for long term monitoring some hospitals before surgery, they plant electrodes so they can monitor the activity. But that is a serious uh, thing, and you don't want to do it unless it's absolutely, uh, you know, like uh, uh, critical. So really, the challenge with BCI is how can we inv non-invasively, yeah, so for example, uh, some patients in epilepsy, they, need, they, they may need to be monitored for about 12 months or so before they can actually uh, 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 perform surgery on. Yes, this one. Thank you so much, Louise. So this can be implanted and the, the, the data is picked up and monitored in a very focused area. So you can't actually pick up all the brain signals from all the regions of the brain, but that is a very focused device. And this seems to be doing well. Uh, they've, uh, they, they've gone ahead of others in terms of FDA approvals, et cetera. But, uh, but these are the challenge remaining, uh, the interface itself. And then of course the analytics, then of course, we don't know the signaling language. Imagine if I was to tap in, hack into the China, Beijing telecom, and I'm listening to all the calls. Doesn't mean anything. I don't speak Chinese. And even if I do, they're all talking together. I can't, I don't know what they're saying. And I think this is where now the challenges with a lot of BCI. However, you know, man-machine interfaces. I mean, BCI is a subset of man-machine interface. We're doing a lot now. We, I mean, some amazing stuff with feedbacks from fit devices to measuring your heartbeat, to measuring your, uh, some muscles or, uh, I mean, we have uh, here in the lab, uh, a radar chip, uh, that we were experimenting with that measure your breathing from a distance. It measures your uh, breathing rates per minute. And, uh, so we can uh, put that radar chip in a room. And if there's 15 people, we can measure all the emotions. We can take that motion data and analyze it, work with it, et cetera, and then determine uh, here we're using it on some art so we can make the art come live as you, as you uh, uh, breathe, when your breathing uh, rates uh, reach a certain level. So, uh, uh, and we're using camera as well to extrapolate some of that data, you know, micro motion. Uh, I think MIT were the first to, to do that. So, uh, so there is many ways you can use now to interface with the body, with the human body. Man, uh, BCI is one of them. That is the toughest nut out of all of them, simply because the stoma is, uh, there's a lot of communications packed up there. But, uh, but that's where the, the, the most fun is now. Yeah, I guess sort of one clarification question that I had was, from what I understand, using deep learning techniques, you can often solve a specific sub-problem, whether it's you know, epilepsy prediction or you know, uh, predicting motion and stuff like this, but general things aren't, aren't allowed. But if the underlying data is the same for all possible application-specific data analysis protocols, is it not possible to have a single headset and then build a whole stack of applications on top of the same data uh, and thus not have a general purpose headset, but have a headset that can pretend to be a general purpose headset in some ways. Yes. Uh, 
I mean, in 2016, I presented at the Royal Albert Hall in London uh, our first neurostethoscope. And basically, it just collects data. Uh, and I had my colleague stand on the stage and we were beaming her uh, a, a data and, and we visualized it in every which way possible. Uh, and I think Luisa can share with us maybe some of the neurovis screens, the visuals. So we were mesh morphing the brain, so moving the signals just to, so you can follow the track. I can show you. Have you got a small video clip? Let's show you this. That's the neurostethoscope uh, we developed. And if you want a copy of that software, I'm happy to, to send you. You can load it, any EEG uh, file on it and then experience that data in this format. So here, uh, for example, we're using uh, uh, 3D heat maps. Uh, uh, we can also, we, we were using uh, uh, mesh morphing, so you can follow the signal flow. Uh, we were, uh, uh, we can drill down from every electrode uh, to, the, uh, 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 to, the, uh, to the exact uh, signals uh, that are beaming there. And it gives us a holistic view on what is going on. So this is, let me just let that video run and I would, yeah. This is uh, with mesh morphing being added on. Now you can see, and that helps us. And what we're doing now is we're trying to study this our data and uh, try to find more meaning out of it because clearly this data is a lot more user-friendly than spike data for the neurologists to analyze, yeah? But we need to build up a new manual, a new protocol to detect uh, and, uh, and tutorials that will allow other uh, people who otherwise will take them five years to be able to, to analyze uh, spike data. They should be hopefully with six months or so with the filters. I mean, we built a lot of filters to make it very easy for them to use. Now, this is a general purpose type of BCI, and we are experimenting with it. And what do we get out of that? Very little, unless we have a specific application or we have a hypothesis we follow. So for example, here in the case of the file, I think Luisa is showing here, it's an epileptic patient. So we can look at this and we can also uh, reconcile it with the spike data. This is drilling down. So now we've taken one electrode in that stethoscope and say, okay, here we're changing the math. How do we, what are the references to, to map? And there is a number of protocols we can deploy. So these are the type of productivity tools that existed in other sectors. Uh, they don't exist in healthcare today. Uh, we're still about 30 years behind in some of the tools the scientists and physicians are working with because of how it is. Uh, health has always been lagging to digitalization. Uh, I think for good reasons as well, but I think it's time for us now to, to put the, uh, you know, put our foot down and push, put some digital, uh, digital, uh, digitizing healthcare and start to experiment the, with some of the tools. What are the reasons you think help is lagged? Is it simply that there's a higher regulatory burden in healthcare? Or is there something more, more complex going on? You know, uh, I think there's many, uh, probably many factors. First of all, I think the big, uh, if you look at, I think Harvard did uh, uh, a study about four or five years ago on 
multi-sector digitization. So they went, uh, looked at every sector and they built up some ranking, various ranking, very smart study. I can send you a copy. And, uh, and they ranked all sectors. Uh, the first uh, by digitization, and also they looked at digitization. What does it mean? Are we talking about digital assets? Are we talking about transactional, about networks, and people? All these things, they broke them down and they came. And I think there was about 20 in the rank. The top five were tech, of course, <laughs> tech sector, uh, media, and uh, I think uh, financial services. And then the obvious. Now, guess where health was? 20, uh, I think uh, 17. It was number 17 out, out of 20, next to farming and agriculture. So in terms of when Harvard did the study, they've ranked health services in the same category as almost as uh, farming and agriculture in terms of digitization. This is a problem. So we have 30 years. So it's not about coming up with new technologies, it's about using the existing ones, you know? Uh, and uh, now why? Because I think there's more money to be made than the other sectors. And tech tend to follow where the money is. Uh, I think uh, digitalization is a confused uh, topic. I mean, we have at the Brain Forum now, uh, in fact, we will send you uh, an invite we have a, a debate we're holding on the 26th of May about that very topic. We've been talking about digitization for decades. What's going on? What's, where is the blockage? Who's holding it back? Do we have the tools? Is it the regulators? And we have a beautiful uh, uh, team of uh, debatees who are gonna join us and we're gonna be recording it and broadcasting it as well. So we will uh, get you a copy, but this is a big topic now. People are waking up to, to looking at healthcare broadly and putting more effort, both from putting platforms like this, and at the same time, taking some digital solutions like some of the ones we're doing here and many others are experimenting with and giving them a chance. Yeah, I mean, yeah, certainly most of the sectors that have incorporated a, a large amount of digitization have seen huge productivity gains as a result. And, you know, healthcare is critically important and we would hope to see the same gains there. And they run in a crisis. Healthcare are often in a crisis mode. You know, you don't find healthcare with lots of capacity to spare. They're always overloaded, underfunded. And so when you go into them with something that's going to fix their life in two, three years' time, uh, and they have crises every day, they're going to kick, kick it forward and say, come back to me. And I think, and, and of course, uh, but I think centrally, if I was to, there's many factors I said in the beginning. I think the main factor is we haven't had a societal debate on healthcare data. And I think once the public know the revolutionary leaps we will have once we digitize healthcare. I was saying to a colleague recently, imagine if the financial services, imagine if banks today are, when that lockdown took place, was uh, the banks uh, were as digitized as healthcare. We would have had a run-in on money. The queues outside the banks would have been a mile long, people trying to draw cash. Or It's because we had ATM and all these payment gateways and all this interconnectivity. We didn't feel the pain of the lockdown. If, we, if that was 30 years, the lockdown, it would have been much more catastrophic to our economies because of that 
break in the system. And I think the banking system saved us from having this further uh, uh, break. And uh, I think had healthcare been at the same level, we would have probably, the lockdown would probably have been so marginalized compared to what we had to go through from contact tracing to all these, you know, improvisations that we had to build as we go along. And this could have been all there in place. So yes, I think this is a wake up call now. And I think what one, one good thing is gonna come out of COVID is everyone's talking about digital health and I feel it ourselves. So on this, on this question, uh, you're obviously currently in the UK where the NHS is a fairly centralized authority. Whereas uh, in the US and in some other countries, uh, healthcare is much more decentralized. Do you imagine that digitalization will come faster places like the NHS where some top-down administrator can just, you know, order, order solutions to be used? Or do you think it'll be easier in decentralized places uh, like the U.S. to, to implement uh, these, these digitization technologies? I think, I think uh, uh, centralizing uh, becomes a problem. The minute you start to put standards, then uh, you will find conflicts uh, where people uh, may uh, subscribe to these standards and others may not, etc. But I think it is still a very uh, fluid situation in terms of how do we go about uh, uh, connecting. And I personally think the best the best way, from my experience, from deployment, from a deployment point of view, because in terms of building beautiful software in labs is, is not a problem. From deployment, I think is evolutionary deployment always works better than revolutionary deployment. Because uh, with the, uh, you, could, uh, you could have built a revolutionary piece of software, but if you deploy it revolutionary, it, will, it could backfire. So you need to think revolutionary, but act evolutionary. Why? Because the people were aspect are often forgotten when we're designing hardware and software, you know? And we could spend 10 years trying to get our heads around the concept and suddenly we introduce it and we want the guys to get it in a minute, in, in five minutes or a month or training or in a course. Or, and I think we need to allow people's reorientation for something that they when especially when it comes to transformative systems. Uh, and uh, and this is one of the problems today with uh, with uh, when you try to deploy in the healthcare. I think personally, you just start small steps. Now we're working on the remote diagnostics. We have a platform in Switzerland uh, uh, for remote diagnostics, and uh, it wasn't as appealing before. So somebody, so for example, there is health tourism. Many uh, many physicians, uh, many patients travel to the United States for medical treatment. And they come for probably three or four things. They come first to be diagnosed, then to be treated, then to recover maybe, and then go back home. Now, it's very expensive for them and their families to do that exercise. Now, we have shortened by saying, you don't need to come to diagnose. Now, what happens is, I think we have some data, but I can't recall, probably 40, 45% of the people who from that total that travel end up being okay. There's nothing wrong with them. So the people that are diagnosed and are okay don't have to travel to get medical treatment. So we are offering a platform, we designed a beautiful platform that allows this to happen. So you can remotely diagnose an MRI, a CT scan, you can have five, six physicians pouring over the same dashboard 
making notes on the on the images and all that runs in real time on a cloud and everybody has that data on a dashboard so if they want to see the patient if they want to see their eg if they want to see their mri we have that now working in switzerland and covid helped us deploy it faster people were dragging their feet now and now we're introducing it in the middle east so we can also help in reducing costs of uh, because many countries you are asking uh, pay for help so optimization uh, will help reduce the cost and make the service not only reduce the cost but make the service more effective and uh, the applications transformative so you're talking about for me if it doesn't give you a 10 time return at the a, a technology deployment you need to think again you need at least to give you a 10 times weight of return when you deploy something to how you were doing it before. At least. And then, but then there's many ways, there's many situations where it's a lot more. And I think remote diagnosing, now think of that, where if you have, say, a thousand patients, where 400 of them travel to the, to the US to be, to be checked for medical treatment, to be told you're okay. You don't need to do health surgery, you don't need to perform. And they have incurred a lot of costs compared to the costs that they would have had to incur if they were sitting, uh, dealing from the same hospital, getting the, the diagnostics uh, remotely. These are the things now I think people will find more appeal. And we, we've, we're feeling it. We're sensing now many uh, healthcare providers are uh, braver and have more courage now to take on these, uh, what could be controversial in terms of data and so on. And of course, we have a lot of data security and data anonymization. So when you talk about health data, if you don't mention encryptions, and we do beyond encryption, we do anonymization as well. So even if the encryption codes are broken, you won't know that this is my data. Yes. So sort of on this topic, uh, the COVID epidemic has brought about a lot of discussion of health equities. Uh, between sort of rural and urban citizens, uh, the poor and the rich and so forth, various countries as you discussed. Uh, and optimistically, it does seem like BCI and remote diagnostics could improve this significantly, where it's possible for someone in, say, a rural region without, without a top-notch hospital to get diagnosed by someone at Mayo or Mass General or presumably the excellent hospitals in, in other countries. Uh, and similarly, it might allow for the cost to go down but on the other hand, I assume these headsets are not especially inexpensive. Is this something that you expect, at least in the short term, to increase inequities in healthcare? Do you think that the relative costs, even early on, work out that it might improve things from the get-go? I think so. I think it's very encouraging. I mean, uh, uh, if you look at what's taking place in the... Uh, we were exhibiting this year, uh, last year, in the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas. And I think I read somewhere that's 40% of all gadgets were health-related. Now, this is good stuff, and it's okay. In the beginning, it's okay to, to, you know, to, to have these gadgets because it's through that gadgets we can get to some pragmatic, uh, serious applications that we can deploy after. And I think now there's many, uh, not only for BCI type of uh, tools, but also uh, there's tools for, you know, whole body sensory, MM. MMI tools and uh, you know it's incredibly cheap you know you could just sort of wire yourself with a suit that measures everything now for from your ECG to uh, for next to nothing and I think the availability of this technology and the low cost 
spontaneous way will allow many researchers to come up with uh, smart uh, algorithms and uh, new solutions that can be deployed. And I think this Internet of Things, the IoT, the health uh, healthcare will play uh, uh, a big part of these sensory devices that we'll see. We will probably see it in fashion uh, and all sorts of wearable, uh, wearable uh, technologies we'll see uh, utilizing from our head to our bodies. And I think this is the era of IoT, uh, and it's very, very exciting. Yeah. And then I also wanted to revisit briefly a question I asked earlier, and perhaps this is just a question of whether it's sci-fi. But so far, we've talked mostly about applications directly in healthcare, where newly patients are quite motivated to make this change in their life to, to improve their health situation. But what are the barriers, do you think, if they're surmountable at all, between the point where every individual is carrying a, a BCI headset of some kind uh, to use some number of applications? In terms of interactive applications, yeah, so you can use BCI to say to, to, to actually pour your thoughts to a computer and then you see uh, thought, to, thought to text or text to thought interfaces. I think this is sci-fi. In terms of certain commands through your, uh, you know, uh, deep learning, long-term monitoring of EEG, and a lot of experiments and training, you will be able to have the brain and as a, 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 you know, perform for people who have disabilities or uh, challenges uh, in, uh, 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 in communicating to a machine. Uh, I mean, I've seen in the lab where you can have a BCI to communicate by blinking, you can actually uh, type on a keyboard. Uh, so you can, have to, you can have all sorts of interfaces to communicate. And when you train people to use them, over time, they become very efficient. I think uh, there was a, about 20 years ago, I saw in a lab in Belgium uh, where somebody was typing with, a, uh, with just like the blink, and they were measuring the blinks, and you can kind of pick up the characters. They're doing it pretty fast. So training will have, but to have something that flows as we do now with the way we communicate, uh, you know, with our fingers on typewriters and so to be able to take, I think this is pure sci-fi and we won't see that happening. There was a study uh, done in, six, in the 60s where, uh, in, yeah, I, 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 and I can send you that, where uh, they had, uh, they were measuring, uh, uh, you know, like thought or, or intention. And the idea is that to train you to, uh, before you press to change the slide of, on a presentation, uh, from reading your thought, it will press change the slide. So just as you're about to press it, right before you press it. And it was, you know, uh, they couldn't prove it then. Uh, I don't know if we can prove it now. Uh, and, uh, but it's still very uh, touch and go, experimental, reverse engineered, you know, you cannot, uh, you cannot uh, recreate it in, in many conditions and, and still early days. But, but we will see, for example, let me give you one outside health, but productivity. We have, uh, we've been working for several years on something called the dream machine. And the dream machine is to, its job is to teach you how to be more focused. And what we do, the VR headset, that you wear has a built-in EEG and we developed some algorithms 
that do this is Luisa showing us the uh, the first case. So they do uh, in real time feature extraction, and then we know whether you are focused or not. Now we want to train you to be focused. So what we do in this experience here on the slide is that we take you to a an island in VR. And when you're in this case, it is Easter Island. When you arrive there, it's very foggy. And the only way the fog will clear is if you concentrate. And then you, you sit there and try to concentrate and you'll see the fog clearing. When you finish the session, we give you a quantitative value of how long you were concentrating in the session. And then by training, you increase your concentration level. And what we are trying to do here is to accelerate what otherwise would may take you to do yoga five years, to become, for example, when we've tested this on experienced people in mindfulness and yoga, they, they scored in the 70s and 80%. When we tested it on uh, people who have never done meditation, mindfulness, some of them ranked 15, 20%. Studies show that our mind wanders 50% of any given day. So half the day, you have no control over where your thoughts go. And we believe through the dream machine, by teaching you to reclaim your mind, imagine if every time I pick this uh, mug of tea, it doesn't work every time. 50% of the time, I, I, I pick something else. That's what happens now. With our thoughts, we have no control. And what, we, what we're trying to do, and of course, because we live in an attention-seeking society where attention today is monetizable, even a like can generate revenue for somebody at the other back of that digital link. So everyone's trying to take, and we see at the, focus is an important uh, ingredient now for productivity as a student, as an employee, as an entrepreneur, and at the same time, to make you choose your thoughts. Because your thoughts are your world, and we see a huge rise in mental health, and more so now with this COVID. And the Dream Machines are, uh, is designed through focus to help you reclaim your mind and be able to discharge unwanted mood states. And this is one good example uh, of BCI that we are trying to take forward. And if you like, at some point in the future, you want to have an experiment with it, we can discuss, send you a set there, and you can try it to you guys there. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds quite exciting. I wanted to sort of touch on, on some of the other stuff you've done with VR, because I know you'd also used VR or explored VR in the treating of phobias, sort of the broader notion of created environments. Uh, I know there's like a lot of fear right now about people sort of already having lost themselves in the digital world of, you know, being, being drowned in social media and in some sense the virtual world being as real or more real than the real world is having damaging effects. Obviously, you don't think the same thing is true of VR, but how would you answer people who say that it is dangerous for us to build these fully immersive experiences when we're already losing ourselves in our laptops and our phones and, and everything else? No, it's a very good question, and I agree with you. And it is always going to be there. But, uh, you know, throughout history, uh, 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 technology was 
never ended up being used for what it was intended for. Now, if we take uh, VR uh, uh, and look what it could do uh, today, broadly speaking, VR will democratize experience. So when we call, we're, we're talking about, let's say, the, when you mentioned earlier about COVID and equity, uh, VR will allow anybody, rich or poor, to experience not being there, but close to what's it like to, to be on a Pacific island with the palm trees above your head? What's it like to be at... Uh, uh, and these most, uh, you know, like uh, uh, amazing places in this planet. What's it like to be on Mars? So VR can give you experience and make it available to anybody, whether experiencing being in a big castle uh, or experiencing being in space or flying. So it democratizes experience. Uh, now, if we see, uh, if, we, if we're looking at VR as a therapeutic tool, I agree because we are, uh, technology has uh, year by year, it's taking us away from nature and from the real world. Today, I think 54% of all of us live in urban places. There's many kids that grow, they don't see what's it like to run in a forest or to climb a tree. They live in tower blocks in many places around the world. Now, would VR headset be better for them than walking in the park and kicking a ball or uh, climbing a tree? Absolutely not. But will VR give them an experience that they wouldn't have otherwise had because of the... Uh, the uh, economic situation in some parts of the world, I think this is good, whether it's a travel experience uh, or any other experience. So there is some good in this. You know, they did a study, I think, at the Mayo Clinic by showing patients just pictures of nature. And they measured the stress levels and they felt better just by looking at the picture. Even. So imagine, let's say, uh, VR being used to treat some of these, you know, mood states and depression and loneliness. There's a lot of uh, uh, senior citizens who are living alone. Uh, their days are dull. So, yeah, but the problem is the overdose. Just like now, any technology we've taken, uh, I've said it before, this technology is like a speeding train. You don't know where it's going, but cannot afford not to be on it. So, Everything that I heard being talked about when I was your age, listening into uh, lectures and presentations, all the stuff that was said, much of it went in a completely opposite direction. I'll give you one example. When I was in the, in the 70s, I used to attend seminars where they told us by the turn of the century, we'll all be working three-day weeks because computers would have taken all the work. Now, the opposites happen. We work seven-day week because we're trying to catch up with computers. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so this is, uh, so I think with these things, uh, it's very, uh, sometimes you can do all the predictions, but until these things deployed, you really don't know how they play out. 
And, and there will always be the argument where some of these technologies will be misused, everything from the knife, <laughs> the knife to, to where we are today, technologies could be misused. So, but it is a big concern uh, for us to how to deal with this, especially with the people who have choice. Some people have no choice. So if you are sitting in a tower block on the 26th floor and you go out once a week for a walk in the park, it's tough. <laughs> so VR is probably is a good thing. But if you are in a, in a, in a big uh, next to Hyde Park or Central Park, your apartment, uh, and you are spending all day uh, on a VR headset doing whatever it is, that's really unhealthy. <laughs> yeah, I, I would also sort of, because I think recreation is quite interesting because even though we might think of it as relatively unimportant, a lot of new technology enters our life through the lens of recreation. It's sort of where we're, we're the most comfortable and getting new ideas. Uh, I'm unsure how closely you've worked with it. I know uh, Christian Volk at FIFA has mentioned that he's a fan uh, of your work and sort of trying to incorporate some of your work into sort of simulated soccer games and stuff like this. Yes. Uh, and I was wondering sort of like how you, it seems like VR right now uh, is in this interesting state where it's being used both in deeply healthcare applications and deeply recreational applications, sort of nowhere in between. Uh, do you anticipate that sort of filling in the gaps will come where the recreational stuff will become better? And uh, like the, the quality will become better? Or do you think that the medical tech side of things will become cheaper? Or do you think it will somehow be some weird mix of the two? I think there will be probably some weird mix of the two. Often you bother a lot of technologies. I've been, you know, borrowing from sectors. So I'll be, I'll be working on a project and something in entertainment. And suddenly I think we can apply that to health. And then some of these ideas, just by retweaking them and, uh, uh, you know, uh, bringing in a new, a new uh, it brings in a fresh set of thinking. But uh, for the, what, what we've done with VR, when I looked at VR back, uh, I think it was 2006. And so I think, I mean, it's been going on for a while. But back then, I thought there's still, we're starting to see something more promising because the processors and the GPUs are getting, you know, better and better and we could see better experiences. Uh, but then if you look at my original, the original use of VR, which is really to put a camera with 360 camera, capture a surround, and then you put it, that is so un, uninteresting and, uh, and uh, really boring as in a form of entertainment. The other end of VR is where you sit there uh, in a walk, <laughs> Uh, in a war game or in a sci-fi game shooting and, and doing stuff. And there isn't anything in the middle. And uh, what I wanted to do is to see how can we take telemetry data, deploy it in a, in a if you like, a, a simulator to replicate the real world in real time. And this is something a colleague uh, of mine, uh, Jesus Formigo and I, we sat for weeks thinking, how can we uh, put a VR experience that can allow us to go beyond looking at a 360 video? If we want to look at, uh, if we want to put, uh, let's say, uh, a rig in a soccer game in one corner, no matter what you do, you're going to be, uh, the point of view is going to be always from that point of view. You cannot walk around the field. Uh, and and uh, in the beginning, it was a little bit, sounded like a bit wacky, 
But then as we started to see the telemetry uh, devices coming out, now the tracking motion, skeletal tracking, uh, we saw then, yes, now I think things are coming together and we built these uh, simulators. Uh, the most recent one we did, aside from football, we did one with the, for motorsport with Formula E to allow you to race in real time with the drivers as they race on the track. And, uh, and uh, the app is uh, called Ghost Racing. It's on the App Store. You can also go back and, uh, and look at, you can uh, go through the race archives and race with your heroes. So uh, we brought the game closer to them. So if you cannot go to the game, now the same with football. Uh, there is probably uh, billions of people love football around the world. How many of them attend a live event? Not enough. Yeah. Certainly, certainly not the big game. The big games, at least in the US, and I, I also call exactly. it racing. Like somewhere. a World Cup. Now imagine yeah. if everybody can feel that energy. Uh, and that's what we're doing with virtual life. And there's more to come. Where there's some exciting things now we're working on. Hopefully, the material for virtually life. It's a company uh, we've set up called virtuallylife.com. Uh, it's really exciting. But this is all pure. It's a new form of media. It's something that sits between attending a live event and watching it on television. So we wanted to bring that event to you and bring your friends. You can sit there in the stadium, watch the match, and so on. It's really exciting. Yeah, no, certainly. Yeah, and there's, there is sort of like, like you're talking about democratizing the sport. So I, I follow racing and like the Montreal GP to get the to get the, the bad tickets, the, the tickets where you're in the pit. It's like still like five hundred, six hundred dollars. And absolutely, football absolutely. I think is no better, right? A, a World Cup match or or a mm. high level Premier Club match, hundreds of euros or or pounds exactly. in the case of. And even to watch on television uh, these uh, premier matches, you have to pay. I mean, and they are expensive to even watch them on television. So it is. Uh, it is really uh, that content. We wanted to bring in something new. It's not a broadcast signal. It's not a live event. We are recreating everybody's in real time and uh, in CGI, and bringing that social. Uh, of course, it's, uh, uh, it takes time to build these simulators, but once you get them going, you, you, you feel you are there. So you can get all your senses, and uh, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. And I think as VR becomes more and more usable, the headsets now are getting smaller and uh, much more, uh, they're not as clunky and bulky, and you don't need to plug it into a computer. The most recent, I think one of the nicest ones we have, I think is it the Oculus, uh, Oculus Quest, Mm -hmm. and this now is uh, replaces a computer and a big clunky one like you see uh, in the dream machine we had uh, and that uh, so we're getting to a point where I think it won't be for long we will see in, on every, in every home on the table next to the iPad uh, a VR headset with, with some various tools and it won't be for the kids and their gaming yeah, uh, I think it will. Be, we're talking about adults because the kids probably that are allowed to have already have them. <laughs> yeah, no, certainly. I, I had the experience of sort of calibrating the first five that my school ever built, and uh, oh. it, was, it was quite interesting in that it was used for educational purposes, you know, anatomy classes to be able to see the body and stuff. But yeah. it took a huge amount of effort to have it be used for not just gaming because there was a lot of discomfort with the technology uh, among yeah. teachers. So I think, yeah, that is. 
any anything like the Oculus that makes it more touch and touch and you know touch and go, uh, and just plug and play is is a huge step forward. Absolutely. And I think we still have to learn about what effects is having on us, on our psyche, especially with young kids. You know, uh, if you're sitting playing a game in VR for several hours, it's, it's a mind-altering experience. And you know that anyone who sat with a VR headset for a limited period of time, when they come out, you need to reorient yourself before you can. And this orientation, especially with, uh, with young minds that are still developing, I think I'm I'm all for experimenting on the adults uh, with what we can do and how we can, uh, you know, improve productivity, entertainment. But I think we need to be very careful with young uh, children whose minds are still in the formative stages, how these things could play into their life. Yeah. And that would be the challenge for the, for the young generations and uh, going forward. Because so it could be... Yeah, yeah there's always that very careful balance between, like, pushing for the new technology uh, and sort of wanting it to, to become real as soon as possible and then balancing that with safety concerns. Correct. And I think it goes back to all our choices, everyone. Is, so it's not, uh, uh, you know, uh, there's uh, some people, you, they go and buy a knife and uh, it helps them to cut the food and others to do violent things. And I think where there's good uses uh, for these applications, there are many. And I think as the platform matures, the reason you don't see a lot of serious applications still, and even us, we slow down in deployment because the hardware platform has not matured. So you could deploy a lot of man years developing software only to realize that six months later, all that now is outdated because the new headset came with the new features and uh, you want to build something new. So I think that pulls people back. Uh, technology moves in cycles. And, uh, you know, until you reach a maturity cycle, many people step, uh, uh, stay aside and wait before they make any significant investments in platforms and uh, major software developments. So, but it's, I think it's coming. We see a lot more VR applications. All right, I know we're sort of coming towards the end of our time. Thank you so much for joining us here today, Dr. Elamat. Are there any sort of final thoughts in PCI VR that you'd like to leave our listeners with? I think it's, we're entering, uh, I think my last thought is that I've, in the last 40 years, I've, I've felt that every year you see technology changes are happening, but then every decade or so, there's a big leap. And that's when, the change is not incremental, the change is transformative. And I think now we are in that era and it's so exciting. And uh, the, uh, there's gonna be a lot of opportunities for the young generation like you guys to, to pick up and take it forward. Thank you so much, Aditya, and thank you all for inviting me to join. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, 
volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.